Good afternoon. I am Professor Larry Jacobs. I direct the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Before we begin, I want to just invite you to uh, join us with questions um, and comments. You'll see there's a Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, right there in the middle. Also, if you'd like a live transcript, uh, that's available too. And again, just click on it and it is available. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us for today's program, Control of Congress Updates on the 22 uh, Midterm Elections. I'm so pleased to have with us two terrific guests. Rebecca Piercy was the political director of Senator Elizabeth Warren's presidential campaign. Uh, she's currently the vice president of public affairs for the Bryson Gillette Group. She's overseeing elections, local, state, national, um, and is really got her finger on the pulse of democratic campaigns. We're also joined by uh, Kirsten Kukowski, who led communications for some of the highest profile national political campaigns. She served as communications director for the National Republican Party. She was also communications director for Scott Walker's presidential uh, campaign. She's currently president of the woman-owned and woman-operated public relations firm K2 and Company and is working on congressional campaigns this cycle. Thank you so much to both of you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So if we run the um, clock back to beginning of the year, there was, a, I think, a, an agreement that this was probably not going to be a good year for Democrats, particularly in the House elections, it is just a very well-known pattern. All but two uh, midterm elections since World War II um, have seen the uh, in-party, meaning the party that controls the White House, losing seats. The Senate races were expected to be close with the Democrats. Um, their 50-50 uh, split with Republicans being very much up for grabs, but probably close contests um, around the country. Then we had the Supreme Court decision on um, abortion, the Dobbs decision, and, and the expectations seemed to be shaken there for, for the summer, during the summer. And Democrats had hoped that there was a surge in turnout, um, at least registration among women and Democrats. There seemed to be more energy uh, there was talk about young women really getting engaged. And here we are in October, and it feels like the pendulum has swung back toward um, where we were in the beginning of the year with expectations of the Democrats losing in the House and possibly losing their majority in the U.S. Senate. Uh, Rebecca Piercy, is that the way you see it? So I think if we had this conversation in January, which we probably did, I would have thought that it was more of a Republican wave year. And I think you're right. The pendulum has swung. And maybe if we had the election in, say, the end of August, it would have been a much closer election for Democrats. I still think that there are some opportunities for Democrats to like, stay in control of the House. Um, and I think the Senate really is up for grabs. Um, I think that there are several policy decisions that have led me to believe this, but also just seeing some of the House polling around the country in these battleground districts. And it's not necessarily the ones that you think 
should be the number one and number two spending races in the country. I'm seeing this in places like Florida and Pennsylvania, where the margins are actually a lot closer with some of these districts that are sort of off the beaten path than they were two years ago, or probably will be two years from now. We have to keep in mind, we're running in new, in new districts. So we don't actually know what they're going to perform like. We can only guess what they're going to perform like. So I'm hanging my hat on, you know, some surprise wins, um, redistricting, just making things a little bit funky and unpredictable, but also having strong candidates that agree with President Biden's agenda and are pushing that forward in their districts where it makes sense. And um, Ms. Kukowski, do you see us kind of back to the January expectations of a Republican wave in the House elections and too close to call on the Senate elections? Yeah, I, I do believe that we've come back. Um, we've been on a little bit of a roller coaster, obviously, as we all kind of, you know, the, as we all follow this on a daily basis, have definitely been on a roller coaster, can, can say. Um, so I, I do think so. I do think that that Republicans will take the take control of the House. I think that's um, probably pretty certain. It's just a matter of how many seats. And I think right now the name of the game is you know, especially in the Senate, but in some of these close um, or these kind of fringe House seats that Rebecca's talking about, I think the conventional wisdom um, in the Republican Party is we need to make sure that as many uh, races as we can be tied on election day. Um, and I think that the the environment will probably then push us over into the into Republican wins. And so, you know, some of these kind of fringe districts, I think it's just let's let's get as close to tied uh, right now as we can. And then we believe that the roller coaster will keep kind of coming in our favor. So and I also believe that, you know, one thing that's going to be interesting is the committees in Washington, D.C. that are spending money on some of these races. It's OK. Are they going to have to maybe, um, you know, is the map big enough right now that they have to spend in so many different races that there might be some races that are going to get caught up um, in that kind of, you know, if they are tied at the end, that maybe more money from these committees could have helped, you know, make them go one way or the other. And there might be some surprises um, in that context. You think about the regions where there seem to be the really close fights. Um, which regions are standing out? Is it the Southwest? Um, you know, where 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 is the the kind of outcome for the majority seem to be most relying? I I can start. I think there are pockets, and I think that there are pockets that are really new districts that we hadn't had to think about before. Oregon five and Oregon six come to mind as places that are in play that weren't in play for years and years and years, and those are two districts that you know, Joe Biden is now paying attention to what's happening in Oregon, which hasn't happened in over 20 years. And so I think that districts like that, that are on the margins that Democrats and Republicans, frankly, probably haven't had to pay attention to for a long time, are where the margins are won or lost in a cycle like this one. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I do a more most of my work in in the Midwest and, and in kind of like Great Lakes areas. And so I would say too, like, uh, I think Pennsylvania, there's a, a, a hotbed of some interesting races, Wisconsin as well. Um, and a lot of it is they're kind of that like 
the they're the redistricted areas where maybe some of the suburban voters are now you know that were kind of moved into different districts so now we have to think about them a little bit differently than maybe we had in previous cycles that's right the, the democrats were so gleeful politically um when the supreme court decision came down and the effects when the campaign seemed to be registering the remarkable vote in Kansas against um, a kind of ban on abortion for the Constitution, 59% uh, voting against that. It really kind of caught Democrats um, at a low point. Um, and then there seemed to be a wave of political strategy that was all about abortion. We've seen a lot of campaigning on that. Uh, James Carville, who's is not shy about just firing from the hip. Um, he's come out quite critical of this. He says, um, um, you know, this idea of running abortion spots and that's it is a mistake. He says, if you sit there um, and the Republicans are pummeling you on crime and pummeling, pummeling you on the cost of living, you've got to be more aggressive than just yelling abortion every other word. Rebecca Pierce, is he right? I think he's right, but I also think that our candidates have obviously seen polling that would indicate that abortion is still a very motivating factor. At debates this week in Arizona, Wisconsin, and North Carolina, Democrats put their opponents on, on, on the spot in these debates that were, some were nationally watched, and I know Kirsten is working in Wisconsin, so I'm very interested in her take here, where Mandela Barnes is really doubling down on the abortion message. And I think, you know, if they're seeing that in polling, while they're still well-rounded enough to talk about, we got to walk and chew gum. You got to be able to talk about Dobbs, and you've got to be able to talk about crime. And if that that doesn't match up to get you to 50 plus one, that's the problem, but I don't think it is a one or the other. You have to do a bit of both. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think there are, I agree that Barnes is definitely doubling down on, on the, on the abortion messaging. And, and frankly, I think that the Republicans are doubling down on the crime messaging. And because I think that um, they are equally as motivating on either end um, of the scale. And we're seeing that um, in a lot of the polling. Um, but I agree that, you know, I think that the James Carville uh, warning uh, is interesting because I do think that there are um, there are a lot of candidates, Democrat, uh, Democrat candidates who really have not been able to talk about the economy in a very coherent way. Um, and I think that we'll see how it shakes out over the next four weeks, but it'll be interesting to see if we look back and say, they're, you know, really doubling down on the abortion message was potentially, you know, a problematic for Democrats, um, you know, in this cycle. So we'll see. It'll be interesting. And Kirsten, do you think the um, Republicans have been hurt by abortion? Has it been this kind of devastating Supreme Court decision that's kind of undermining lots of Republicans? I think it depends on the candidate and how they've handled it, quite frankly. I think that there were some candidates, you know, and, and I'll back up and say, you know, part of the roller coaster this year was really interesting in terms of the timing of the leak of the Dobbs decision, because if that hadn't happened during primary season, I think you would have some different, uh, some of these um, elect, some of these general candidates might be different because the, alt, alt, the outcomes in the primary were impacted heavily by the Dobbs decision. 
Um, and so I think that was actually more Im impactful than say it is in the general right now, because I think that it really isn't um, for independent voters from what I'm seeing, it really isn't the top issue that people are voting on. Um, and so it's, I don't know that as, as long as a candidate is out there and they're being transparent about their their position and they're contrasting it with their their opponent. Um, I it, it really has not been as big of a problem for Republicans as maybe if a candidate it seems like they're being evasive and they're not telling the truth. They're not being transparent. I think that's when we've had some problems um, on the Republican side. Yeah, let me just jump in here. If you're wondering about this distinction between primary and general election, what Kirsten's saying is that. During the battle for winning the nomination, the primary season, uh, you've got the candidates who are competing with the party activists, and they tend to be more liberal and especially more conservative than other voters, and particularly general election voters. So when the leak comes out, the Republican candidates had to move to the right because those were the voters who were going to be deciding who was going to be nominated. You move into the general election. And the candidates are now thinking, hey, how do I reach those up for grab voters? Um, and they, they shift. They don't move wholesale, but they look to re-accent different positions or just become less uh, specific. Um, Rebecca, do you, do you think the impact on Republican candidates has been less than what it might have been hoped for or expected back in August? It, it seems like Democrats thought this would be their their secret sauce back then and now. But it's had less of an impact. I mean, we're still talking about it in almost every race across the country, whether it's top of mind or fifth or sixth on a list of things that get asked about in a in a one-on-one -on -one debate with any of these folks, particularly that are running statewide or for Congress. Um, and so, you know, I I don't, I don't know that I necessarily thought that this was the silver bullet for all of us on the Democratic side. It's certainly something that um, when it happened, I think we were prepared to put it into our toolbox, right? And maybe it would have been front and center in a um, more of like a woman on woman contest, which I don't think we actually even have any of in the Senate right now, which is kind of weird. But it's it's not it's not the number one thing that people are talking about. It's like I said, you've got to walk and chew gum, and you have to have a well-rounded portfolio of policies where you disagree with your opponent on, or it's not going to work. Um, I've gotten this question, so I'm going to share it with you. Um, there's a well-known question. It's called a generic um, horse race question about who you're going to vote for for Congress. Um, it's kind of helpful. Um, but it gets a lot of attention. And most recent polls have showed the Democrats with a slight edge over Republicans in terms of the U.S. House races. Um, but when you look at folks who are following the races closely, they say Republicans are likely to pick up somewhere between a net dozen to maybe two or three dozen uh, seats in the House and regain the majority. What explains this this apparent um, disjuncture between generic how, uh, ballot race showing Democrats up and then these you know, close race by race um, examinations that show something different. Kirsten? 
Yeah, the generic ballot is always interesting. As Republicans, we're super happy to be a couple points down or tied in the generic ballot. We're never up in a generic ballot. Um, and that's just due to, you know, part, I think the the branding of the parties um, and just party affiliation. I think that especially in these close, like more swingy districts, people tend to vote for the candidates themselves. Um, one, you know, one in, in particular, one race I'm look, working on in Wisconsin is, you know, it, it's a seat that's been, was held by a Democrat for um, 24 years, but he was a pretty, you know, middle of the road mainstream, his uh, Ron Kind was his name and raised his name and he's not running again. And so the district has evolved and become much Trumpy over the years um but like you know so now republicans will likely take it but that's a district where even if people you know want you know they voted for a democrat even though maybe you know they are top they're voting for top of the ticket in a different way and so the the makeup of some of these swingy districts makes it for the the that generic ballot just not really to be as much of a, a factor i don't know rebecca what you think but that's yeah i I, I totally agree with you on one, the branding for Republicans, which, you know, feels problematic for you guys, but you know, has been my entire career. Yeah, so yeah. Like, <laughs> but it's also one of these where that generic ballot, maybe people don't totally understand what they're doing because there are people who are going to vote for a Republican for governor and a Democrat for Senate, and they might like the Republican for Congress. And so like, to me, that is a misleading poll question because it so simplifies what you're doing when you get to the ballot box. And it may be like, yes, people understand the difference between Congress and governor and what that generic ballot means. But I just, I tend to think that people's votes are a little bit more nuanced than just like, gone. the, the straight ticket voters are gone. They are me and Kirsten, that's it. So there's not many more left. <laughs> You two have like driven a Mack truck through one of the most popular survey questions. Media love to do stories on this question, but we now know I'll pay too much attention to it. Um, I want to ask about the the Senate races. Of course, there's an even 50-50 split, um, and the Democrats are desperate to hold the majority so they can move their judicial appointments through and, and other things. Um, and we've got Couple races, Georgia and Nevada, where you've got Democratic incumbents who are basically in toss-up races. We've got three um, races, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Nevada, where you've got, um, excuse me, Ohio, where you've got Republican, uh, current Republican seats that are also um, toss-ups. Um, how are these going to be decided? Is it any, any inclination about, or is it just like, wait for election day? Do you have an insight into to what's going to go on here, person? I, I can take this first. I mean, I, I think that it's going to come down to the wire. I think that um, anybody who has plans that first couple of weeks of November probably you know, we, we might all be working. We don't know. Um, I think things are going to be tight. Um, and I think that things are going to come down to the wire. And like I said, I mean, part of, part of strategy is getting as for Republicans is getting to that tie in these, in particular, these U S Senate races you speak of and hoping that the environment pushes you over the edge. And so that, that, what that means is we're not going to know until very late. When you, um, when you talk, when you talk about the environment pushing you over the edge, are you basically, um, 
kind of raising the, the specter of a wave that there'll be this shift at the end, undecideds come off the sidelines and vote. Um, there's a kind of a, a sense that this is not going well for Democrats. Um, we have seen that pretty persistently over the last couple of decades. Is that what you're anticipating, kind of a, a wave of some sort? Yeah, I think that there's, um, I guess, yes, you could call it a wave. I think it's basically an acknowledgement that in a lot of ways what the Democrats are, um, that they're going to have a, they're going to have a ceiling. And because the kind of right track, wrong track nationally and the economy, um, the numbers are looking the way that they are, that at the end of the day, the people who are still undecideds, um, which I, I, ha I have a hard time understanding those people, um, but the people who are still undecideds on election day, that they will come and they will say, okay, well, it cost me, you know, 30 more dollars than normal to fill up my gas tank and I'm going to go with Republican. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't know. And, and there's a lot of time left, right? It's only four weeks, but who knows what that environment will look like that, be, that first week of November. But I think that's the calculus. Um, Rebecca, there's a kind of a, a rough um, way of thinking about the undecideds, which is when you've got an incumbent um, or the in-party um, is kind of on the in the hot seat because of the economy, because of unpopular president, that the undecideds aren't really totally undecided, that you can expect a split with the undecideds going in favor of the, the challengers and against the in-party. Do you abide by that? Do you, do you think this is these folks are going to fall off in favor of Republicans? I hate being the it's both person on this call today, but it's both, right? I do think that there are truly, truly a slim margin of undecided voters in each of these five or six races that you listed off. But I also think that it's going to be different by race based on these candidates and what happens in the next four weeks, because I think if anything, the last four weeks have showed us that these races are tumultuous, they're fast moving, they are very high stakes. We're talking about very serious issues with each of these campaigns. And so they're all gonna play a little bit differently. And I think something else to take into account is early vote. And that is where, where Kirsten says that Republicans wanna be tied by election day. I think Democrats have the opposite goal of being like way ahead on election day because we know that Republicans are going to make up that that more traditional I'm going to the polls on election day and that's sort of a difference in the way that we strategize but it's something worth noting as Kirsten and I tend to agree on a lot of what what's happening this is just a different way that parties have operated for a long time so there are several of these races where you've got states that tilt one way or another um, and the races are close. So for instance, Georgia, we typically think of Georgia as a Republican state. It's, it's clearly more, more competitive now than it has been in the past. Ohio has you know, moved more in the Republican direction. Both of those races are toss-ups at this point. Um, and does, do, you, do you tend to believe that the underlying partisan um, tilt of those states will be part of the the outcome, or is the power of the of the campaign and the candidates going to prevail? I think that, sorry, Rebecca, you go first. Well, I, well, I I think it's actually the power of the candidates in these two exact situations, because you've got really flawed candidates, in my opinion, in JD Vance, 
and in Herschel Walker. And I think these are two that we, we mentioned a little bit before, but I think this is where it really gets personal. And you've got to think about, voters are starting to think about, okay, like, I get it. Politics is difficult. DC is a mess. What, who am I voting for? And that's where you start to really get personalities and campaigns and the tactics come into play with a voter who's like, what am I doing? <laughs> is this the guy or is this the guy? And maybe they're not that different in a lot of ways, but I think in the last two weeks, we've definitely seen some shifts in both Ohio and in Georgia that probably tilt it in a democratic favor, but I haven't seen recent polling in either of those since, since either the Herschel Walker story or a J.D. Vance um, debate earlier this week, which may be a, a change maker, but you know, 27 days is a lifetime. So it could go entirely the other way by the time election day gets here. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm struggling. I, I struggle with this because I think of basically what we're suggesting is they're going to be voters who split their ticket. We're going to vote Republican. And then in the Georgia or Ohio Senate races, they may vote Democrat. And we're in an era where split ticket voting is supposed to be you know, practically dead because we're so polarized, where you know, the parties have sorted so well. Kirsten, how do you size up these races in particular? I mean, we're seeing this in Pennsylvania too, that there might be some, a considerable amount of split tickets. Um, there, there's a, there's a, so um, the, the Dem, they'll pull a Democrat governor and then potentially Republican Senate. And so this is, it's all, you know, Rebecca was talking about it. This, this is, this is really candidates. And I go back to this also go back, goes to the primaries this time around and what kind of came out of our, that primary electorate feeling um, earlier this spring post-Dobbs. And so um, it'll, be, it's, it'll be interesting. I tend to think that the reason that these races are still so close is because of this indecision on the candidates themselves, but that ultimately the environment will, and, and the makeup of those states, as you noted, um, will continue to push it towards the Republicans. That's just my guess. Um, but like she said, 27 days is an eternity. So another way of thinking about these races, and this is pretty familiar, you go back to the most recent presidential outcome, yeah. And in Nevada, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, you know, Biden won very narrowly and with an emphasis on very. Um, does that give the Democrats an advantage or we just say there really isn't a partisan tilt here? Uh, it's, it's just, I just think it's so marginal. We don't really I, I wouldn't put that into into a calculation that is real, but, you know, it's it's something. I'll take the edge, right? I'd rather have the edge and not the edge. But I, I don't think that in those states, it's enough to say we are now a blue state. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, we've got some questions coming up. I'm going to get to them in a second. Um, I want to ask about uh, demography. There's been this kind of um, expectation among progressives and Democrats that as the country became more diverse, that this would be um, almost a, it would be a natural advantage for Democrats. Um, and, you know, the polls kind of move around on that issue. Um, we certainly saw in the 2020 presidential congressional races that uh, Republicans did better among Latino voters in Florida and Texas than expected. 
And some of those outcomes were different than what was anticipated. Um, and polls recently, I would say, are basically showing Democrats are getting the support of Latinos by about two thirds and Republicans are getting the other third. It does vary though by region and races. Um, Rebecca, how do you see this you know, really rapidly changing racial and ethnic composition of the electorate playing out this year? So it's a great question about this year. And I, I just wanna take a step back and, and you know, I think the, the Latino vote is one that has eluded Democrats in a lot of ways, particularly in places like Florida and Texas. And the problem is the way that we have treated the block of voters and that is as a monolith. So we don't treat Puerto Ricans any differently than we do a Cuban voter or a Mexican American voter. And so that is where the difference comes in. And I think a lot of a lot of these people are not just here because they're Democrats. They are conservative people from conservative countries who identify more with conservative values. And like that is how we need to like categorize and figure out what our 50 plus one is. And so I think that it's a, it's all about the communication to the people. Are you communicating in their na native language or are you com communicating to them in a way that's respectful and understands you know, where they've come from and what, what they value most about their communities that they live in now. And so I feel like it's, it's like a thing that you have to take in little pockets. Like El Paso is going to be different than Miami. And if we don't recognize that as a party, then we're going to lose and continue to lose in places like that. Yeah, I would, um, I, I agree that I think that's why maybe we haven't seen such a shift in favor of Democrats. I also think at the same time that that's been happening, I think Republicans have had more of a concerted effort, particularly on candidate recruitment. And I think candidate recruitment has been really helpful to us in places like Texas, Florida. Um, and so I, you know, I think the Republican Party is making some strides. Now, are we, we're not making enough strides, right? We need to keep going. And so we need to keep continue to do the outreach that that was started in the 16 election cycle um, that the, the party really invested in and, I, and going into the communities um, and, and not, you know, taking a wide swath the way that Rebecca's talking about. And so I know that the, the National Party really, you know, started emphasizing that um, they need to continue that. And then, I, like I said, I mean, and it, I think it really comes actually down to not like the U.S. Senate or presidential candidates. They're going to they're going to just continue to filter up. But it's it's House, it's congressional dis districts down. And if our party continues to recruit good candidates that are diverse, I think we're going to continue to kind of see this maybe even out a little bit more. It's fascinating. Um, you look at the 30 most competitive House races and half of them. Republican Party has recruited a woman or a Latino. Um, and it's it has been, it's not just a cycle, it's been something that's that's been building. Um, it, it's also striking um, some of the, the candidates who have been recruited, like in Texas, these are, you know, Trump, Trump candidates who are, you know, a, in one case, a woman and a, a, a Latina. Um, and so it, there's a kind of a battle here between the identity and the ideology. Um, 
Does that present a particular challenge to the Democratic Party? Rebecca? I don't think it's a challenge. I think it's you know, it's a lane that we occupied for so long, we've probably taken it for granted that we weren't going to run against a white guy, or maybe sometimes a white lady. And so it's, 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 we welcome it. Like, I think Congress and the state legislatures and the Senate and the governorships, they need to look like America. And as we merge into this new, new American makeup of what people look like and identify as, I, I don't think it's a problem, even electorally. Like, I, I think this is actually a good thing. So there's been so much criticism, though, of the Democratic Party for not shifting more quickly, for continually, you know, um, not following the advice that you gave um, and, and running, you know, essentially um, campaigns that are not in step um, with the economic concerns of, of voters of color, um, of the, you know, the diversity um, rather than the monolithic. Uh, character. I know they should really listen to me more. <laughs> Look, I think it's a thing that we've been making a concerted effort on for cycles and cycles, and it's it's hard to change institutions. And I think, if anything, that is what I have learned over the last 22 years, is that making making strides in an institution like any party is tough. It's tough for a woman. It's tough for people of color. It's tough as a woman of color. And I think that's where I'm happy to see Republicans recruiting more candidates of color and more women of color to run, because I think that helps change their party too. And not just in the way that, yes, they look different, but they come at it from a different perspective than what they've come to, to Congress or to governorships with over the last 50 or 100 years, which is majority white guys, just like the Democrats have. Right. And I think the hope would be, right, that we don't need to necessarily talk about it in terms of the difference in ethnicity, but differences in ideology, regardless of how you look and where you're from, you know, where you're from. And so I think that Republicans for a long time didn't embrace that idea. Um, and I think we have more and more. And I think that that should be a good thing, I think, for our country, if, the longer that this continues. Uh, we've got a bunch of questions here. Let me get to some of them. Um, will the likely spike in gas prices caused by OPEC doom the Democrats the last minute? Rebecca? Maybe. I mean, honestly, 27 days, anything could happen. Look, I think that this ties back to the economy, and I think that Democrats and Republicans I, I think the electorate is very focused on their pocketbooks and their communities. And so when you're seeing some of these Senate and governor races, talk about what they will be able to do to, to impact people's economic situations. I know this is a panel about Congress, but I also think that this is really important when we're talking about state legislatures, because those people have such an immediate impact on the way that we live our lives and state taxes and local taxes and things like that. So you know, I think OPEC spike would probably take a while to trickle down to people at the ballot box, but 27 days is a long time, so maybe. Kirsten, is this part of the wave that you think may develop? 
yeah, I do think that it, it will factor, right? And I think the timing might be, um, you know, one because it's 27 days, um, I think the timing might be that it's kind of what I was talking about before. If, if a lot of these races are tied going into election day and OPEC's decision, you know, three a couple days ago now is, you know, actually impacting people when they go to the gas pumps, then, then yes, then it will definitely um, help Republicans in that scenario. Uh, we got a question here from Chip Peterson, and Rebecca, I think you're the one to respond to this. Why aren't Democratic candidates placing more emphasis on the threat to American democracies, American democracy, and on measures to preserve it? You know, that's a really good question, and I think that if we sort of trace this back to January 6th, it's an underlying issue that people are not quite talking about, but it's at the it's at it's just under the surface. And I think we see this in races where, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene should not have any impact on the race in Ohio for the U.S. Senate, but she's surely mentioned a lot in a lot of the back and forth about J.D. Vance and who he associates with as an election denier, Marjorie Taylor Greene. So I I think that it's there, but it's not something that the electorate is so completely worried about that it tops things like Dobbs or the economy or crime and homelessness and a battery of other things. It's just an underlying thing that, you know, we're we're all hoping that democracy survives, right? And I think that's that's what ties us all together. But you're right. I don't think that it's um, something that Democrats are really talking about. I just think it's there and assumed that we would want to preserve democracy. So have you seen any polling at all that suggests that the um, swing voters are really consumed or talk about or have as a top priority the January 6th insurrection or the democratic concerns about, you know, the downfall of American democracy? Is that showing up on anything you've seen? Not, not, not on my end. Um, and I actually had a national news network um, come to us and say that they were trying to do a man on the street package on January 6th and they couldn't find anybody who knew what January 6th was. Um, and I think that's part of the reason that the polling is what it is, is that it's people aren't super aware of it. And if they are, it's, um, you know, it's not as important as the economy, uh, as, Re as Rebecca was saying. And it's one of those things where unfortunately, you know, as Americans, we're, we're in, you know, instant gratification. And it's the things that are right in front of us that can be solved right that we want to be solved right away, that we tend to vote on. Yeah, okay, good. Um, there's always things in the election season where you you know, particularly in the beginning of the year, people say, oh, this is going to be really important, or it might be important, or it's been important in past years. And I, I kind of keep track of them. It's like the non-effects. Um, I thought Ukraine might at some point crop up as, you know, as an impact on um, the, the general election. If you go back, of course, for the decades of the Cold War, this was a a perennial topic. And here we've got the US and Russia as close to nuclear war, possibly as any point since the Cuban Missile Crisis in the early 1960s. And I'm just curious, are either of you picking up in the general election, um, the Ukraine issue, the 
kind of US, uh, Russia um, uh, tensions as they rise? No, I can start. I, no, um, I, unfortunately, I am. I'm actually tend to be more of a, a foreign policy geek, and I really care about these things. And I think what's happening is, um, you know, should be focused more uh, on more by Americans. Um, I was glued to the TV when it, you know, when it started, and I didn't know a lot of people were. But attention spans again are an issue, and because it's been going on for a long time, I think unfortunately Americans have lost kind of their attention span on it. And I really have not seen anybody really address it other than I will say it is still an issue in the Republican Party in terms of which camp are you in. Um, and I know I had a candidate yesterday do an interview on Fox and there were, he, he followed J.D. Vance who got the same question, which camp are you in? Are you in the camp that we should do something? We should, you know, like Biden said, we need to give every all the resources to Ukraine or are you in the camp of no, we're, we're not, we shouldn't be involved. This isn't our thing. Um, and so that's where it's come up more than, than not, you know, necessarily Democrat versus Republican. Yeah. And I think, you know, going back to the cold war, you know, a, a pretty typical Republican response against Democrats is you're weak on communism. You know, you're not doing enough on national security. And now there's this, you know, maybe it's Trump inspired uh, pullback a more isolationist view that doesn't seem to be as committed to that. Um, Rebecca, how are you seeing kind of the, the Russia-U.S. Uh, battle um, or rising tensions play out this election season? Well, I, I, for one, am worried about a nuclear war. So that, it, you know, put me in a poll. But, you know, I think Kirsten's right. The attention span is just not there. And I think had this happened had the invasion on Ukraine happened today, as opposed to February, I think we would be having a very different conversation about where Republicans and Democrats are when it comes to arming Ukraine, taking uh, anything away from anybody else. Like it, it would just have a bigger impact. So, you know, I'm actually seeing it when we talk about my candidates' bios in particular, where they've got a strong military or defense background, we're seeing a little bit of a bump versus candidates that don't have that international or military background in places that I didn't expect it. So Florida is a great example of this. Southern California, another good example of this. And we're really leaning in on the defense of, um, actually, democracy is part of what we're leaning in on in these races. But it's also the sort of the chops to be in a foreign country and talk about America. And I don't see, think we're seeing that in a lot of races across the country. And it's, it's, you know, maybe this is part of a factor of COVID is that nobody's gone anywhere, done anything, and there haven't been as many conflicts as there were pre-COVID. And now we're seeing Ukraine and we're all dis desensitized from it. But I do think it's it's a little bit odd that we're not having more conversation about it as as an entire electorate and not just the Republican factions that Kirsten talks about, which I think, you know, that's race by race specific too, right? So. So let, let's let's uh, talk about the closing 27 days. You've both said, who knows what's gonna happen. We wake up one morning and um, uh, Putin has fired a tactical nuclear weapon um, at Ukraine. Does that have an impact in these closing days? And if so, um, which party is is hurt or helped by it? 
I think it really largely depends on President Biden's response to this. <laughs> that was exactly what I was going to say. It's all so, about how Biden handles it. Yeah. So then, so then, you know, the, you know, does that create a kind of rally around the president effect that Joe Biden, you know, steps up to lectern, makes this announcement that calls for Americans to unify, and all of a sudden Biden's approval ratings go shooting up? Um, could that be kind of a you know, one of these October surprises? I think yes. It, and it, you know, it's not like anybody roots for war, but that's definitely what happened when, when, when either Americans are attacked, we saw it in, in, on 9-11, certainly shortly after, and the elections in New York and then the midterms right after. So I, I think it would have an impact that benefits Democrats, but at what, you know, at what cost, right? Like what, yeah, no, we all appreciate yeah. the, the kind of existential uh, threat here, but just as a political matter in the final 27 days, is this the kind of October surprise, Kirsten, that could, uh, you know, tilt a lot of these close elections in the Democrats' favor? Potentially, but I would also argue that there have been things, especially foreign policy, that the president has not been as decisive on um, and strong on that as, as a lot of Americans would want. And so I, you know, I hear a lot of Republicans kind of parrot back the wall, you know, if he was only negotiating through strength, then it would be different. And so I think it really just does depend on how strong President Biden comes out. If he is strong and he comes out decisively and he manages it and people, you know, feel like they want to, they want to come to him, then yes. If he's not strong and he kind of you know waffles and doesn't really have a good response, then I think it actually probably probably ends up helping Republicans. I think that's right. And I also think you know that the nuance in between how Republican candidates have aligned currently with President Biden would have an impact on those particular races where candidates have said, I'm with Biden and I want to do X, Y, or Z, and and the candidates that have not. I think that's where the distinction gets gets laid. Yeah, though, that though is one of the prime ingredients for a rally around the president. When you get the other party saying, "I'm with the president," or you know, "Here's my record," that's and then the media picks up on it and starts talking about how both parties are rallying around the president of this emergency. Okay, so we're going to hold that as as a potential October surprise. I want to ask you about another non-effect. Um, not that long ago, both parties were battling over the Affordable Care Act, sometimes known as Obamacare. Um, it's now reaching record levels of enrollment. And I'm hearing crickets when it comes to the Affordable Care Act. I'm not seeing it on the campaign trails, but you two are much closer. Has the Affordable Care Act fallen off the agenda for Republicans, Kirsten? Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of it has to do with um, our failure over the years to have a solution of our own, right? So you can only run against the ACA, you know, Obamacare as, um, as long as you don't have what, you know, what once we were in power and didn't do something about it, 
then all of a sudden we don't have as much of a leg to stand on. So that happened. And I also think it just is a product also of the of the election year and what the issues are. The only way that healthcare ever comes up is in like prescription medical, you know, medicine prices. It's always in the cost of um, healthcare that is is kind of the driving factor there. And there's just so many other things going on right now that it really has dropped off. Chris, Rebecca, I'm curious, why aren't Democrats taking credit for a landmark piece of legislation that's now reaching record numbers um, and a growing number of independents and even Republicans seem to be pleased with how things are going? Where, where's the credit taking? Well, I think the credit taking was eight years ago, and that's part of the problem is you're seeing a, a significant turnover in the people in Congress who were actually there when we voted on it in 20, 2009 and 2010, and all of the repeal um, attempts that Kirsten talks about, we're not seeing the same members running for office or even in office. And so that's part of it. You know, they're, they're just a smaller number of those people that were in Congress now, or that are in Congress now that were in Congress then that can take credit for it. I think that there are also some that, um, Kirsten's right, like we're just, we're, we're, beyond it because the Republicans didn't have a solution, but we're also beyond it because we've got so much other stuff that is top of mind that there's just no way a credible Republican candidate is going to get all the way down to repeal ACA and have not talked about crime, homelessness, Dobbs, Ukraine, January 6th, Donald Trump, like any of those other things. It's just not, it's not worth it at this point to try and figure out how to repeal it without being in the majority in one or both houses, I don't think. Yeah, I do a lot of debate prep for candidates and I can say I have this is not even an issue we expect to come up in any debates at all. So, inter very interesting. But. That is interesting. I mean, that was it was not like that two years ago. Right? <laughs> okay, so here's a non-effect that's I think quite striking. Um, uh, we've got a question here, Rebecca. Maybe you could help us start this one. Um, have the Democrats overemphasized their outreach to the Black community at the expense of their relationships with other minority communities? I mean, no, but I, I see where your head's at, um, particularly as we talk about Latinas and Latinos, I think, look, I think the Democratic Party has done a great job of doing appropriate outreach to different constituencies and has really spearheaded um, speaking different languages on some of our literature. I know we did some Tagalog uh, literature earlier this year. We operate at my firm in three languages. And so, you know, I don't think that it's an overreach it's more of like we've got to get the other um minority groups sort of up to par where we are with african americans who have been an integral part of the democratic party since its inception right and so it's also less of a or i guess african americans are a larger block that are solidly with democrats all of the time and it's less of a nuance than a lot of these other minority groups where there may be people that are more conservative that are drawn to the Republican party, we find the African-American voters to be a much more reliable block for us. I'm not sure if that answered the question. So you can put in the chat if it didn't. So but let me let me follow up on that. 
Um, because of the concern about crime, we've seen Democrats pivot towards, no, we, we're going to address public safety, we're in favor of cops. Um, and there has been some resentment um, in the Black community among advocates affiliated with Black Lives Matter that the Democrats are backtracking and once again can't be relied on uh, to address social issues, public safety issues as it affects communities of color. Is the Democratic Party caught? Um, on the one hand, it's trying to reach out um, to um, voters who are you know, uh, scared and anxious and are up for grabs. On the other hand, they're trying to hold a, a very important, a vital constituent that they need to turn out in large numbers in order to win. I think it depends on the race and I think it depends on the state and I think it depends a lot on crime rates. And it probably also depends on, you know, the activity, let's say the activities of the police forces in those particular areas. I think that there are probably a lot of nuanced answers to this, but that's as straight as I can give it, that it's just, it's just going to depend on where you're at. Like, I think this is a very different thing in Minneapolis than it is in say, like St. Louis, right? Or maybe it's not. And it just depends on the candidate's records. And it also depends on a lot on the public perception. And so, yes, it's a dance, right? But I think it's going to be a different dance in every race. So do you think Democrats continue to uh, pay a cost for uh, being associated with calls for defunding the police or looking to um, replace the police department entirely in Minneapolis, Minnesota? Um, so it's interesting. I actually think that this issue has taken has not been as big of an issue in Minnesota politics this this election cycle as it probably should be, um, and I don't know if that's just a product of money or you know what what it is, but um, in other in other states this is the issue. Um, so I you know I've talked a lot about Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. I just happened to to do a lot of work there in those U.S. Senate races. It is the issue. It is crime versus abortion, and it is defund the police and uh, soft on crime policies with the Democrat candidates. And um, it's also like this, um, you know, criminal justice reform in terms of sentencing reform. And so I do believe that Democrats do pay the price, especially in, 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 in Philadelphia, in Milwaukee, where the crime is hit in, in African-American communities really, really hard. And so it'll be really interesting to look at um, you know, just the, what the electorate did um, on election day, because it could cut both ways for the Democrats, I think. Rebecca, did you want to jump in? No, I agree. I largely agree with that. And I do think it's interesting that it hasn't been as big of a topic in Minnesota. I guess I hadn't realized because I'm not there, but yeah. Um, so the Democrats during the Republican primaries came out in support of some fairly extreme Republican candidates. And it was part of this effort to kind of game the system and, and have a candidate they thought would not be appealing in the general election. Um, and maybe that's work, but there are a couple races, including in Michigan, where you've got a fairly uh, a right-wing Republican candidate who could well win. Was the Democratic strategy irresponsible? Could it backfire? Rebecca? 
it could backfire, but I don't think that gamble is irresponsible. I think we were banking on a swath of moderate voters who are some Democrats, some Republicans, some independents who were just not Trumpers, right? And so putting a Trump candidate front and center on a national, basically a national stage in a race like that is as high profile as the Michigan governor's race or any of the US Senate races, it, sure, it's a gamble. I don't know that backfiring is necessarily what I would call it. Um, you know, I think ultimately we knew that Trump would have some outsized impact on a lot of these primary races, and he did. And I think Republicans are still trying to figure out what do we do with these people in a couple of cases. I mean, the races are still close. I'm not saying they're not close. But we might not, they might not have the desired candidates that they wanted at the outset. Like, I think if we had asked Kirsten if she wanted a whole bunch of Trump people to win these nominations in the spring, she probably would have said, not necessarily. But I think that by and large, the Trump candidates won in most of these cases. Yeah. So and I was working on one of those in Illinois. And it's interesting, it's actually much closer uh, than I think I would have thought it was going to be this close and i think that's a product of the environment um but i also then think in my head well gosh if the democrats hadn't spent you know 35 million dollars trying to prop up the more trumpy candidate where we could actually have won with a less trumpy candidate right and so i look at these and i think oh gosh if if these candidates could make it as close as it was then their strategy worked uh, unfortunately you know most likely so it's but from the democratic point of view if they're if one of their campaign slogans is about protecting democracy and they've promoted candidates who are denying the 2020 presidential election um, and some of those candidates get elected, is that irresponsible? Is it, is it appropriate? I mean, from my perspective, um, you know, I think I, we've seen, and you know, Rebecca talks about the swath of the moderate, more moderate Republican voters who are not Trumpy. And so I do work with quite a few pollsters and, and that, that, um, that swath is growing. And it used to be 60, 60% Trumpy, 40% non-Trumpy. Now it's flipped and I think it's 40% Trumpy and 60% not Trumpy. So my desire, and this is just my brand of Republican politics, my desire would be that we would all continue to try to make that swath of the Trumpy smaller and smaller. And so do I think that the Democrat strategy this year probably it, it hurts that effort, maybe, right? But I also think it's on the Republican Party to write itself too. I don't know if that's a so answer. Back during the, um, uh, I guess it was last year, there was a very heated Virginia gubernatorial race. And the Democratic strategy there was to uh, try to create a referendum on Donald Trump. And if the belief was that this would turn out Democrats and it would tilt the the race in the favor of Democrats. It didn't work out that way. The Republican ran a, a very smart campaign and, and prevailed. Um, does Trump have, what, what is Trump's effect? Is it a positive or a negative effect in uh, the 2022 election? Rebecca, is he helping or not? It, well, I think just going back to the example from 21, it has to be believable. Nobody thought Glenn Youngkin was a Trump guy. Like he's like a dad in a sweater vest from the suburbs. Like he's not an outspoken Trump supporter, like a, you know, 
any of name a candidate for statewide office at this point right now that it, a JD Vance, right? It's just a totally different dynamic than than there. So uh, to me, I think it helps our chances to have these Trump aligned candidates running against our hopefully sometimes more moderate candidates in these places. But if it doesn't fit, we shouldn't try and make it fit to label them with that Trump alignment. Yeah, and I guess that's where I'd pick up. I'd say it kind of like the abortion message in some ways, right? Like it's almost like um, overplaying. It, they're on the verge of overplaying the Trump message and overdoing the abortion message. And they have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. And so I don't think it's worked nearly as well um, this cycle. If anything, I keep going back to the primaries. If anything, the way that the tr Trump has been most influential was in the primaries, um, but we're now beyond that. So uh, we're actually not beyond Donald Trump, though, and we're almost out of time. And I want to ask you, with regards to 2024 and the primaries, would you would your guess be at this point that Donald Trump is the favorite if he decides to run to be the Republican presidential nominee? You know, a couple months ago, I said what I said, yes. Um, I think his stature is way, it's definitely going down. Um, I actually think right now the person I would pick to be the front runner would be Ron DeSantis. Um, a lot of that has to do with what he's been battling with for the last couple of weeks. And I think usually he's been giving, given some pretty good marks. So I actually think things, it's a little more complicated today than it was a couple months ago. And Rebecca, I know I'm asking you to step out into fantasy land here. But um, do you have any sense about Joe Biden as the nominee? Will he run again or? He'll, he'll, he'll run again. And I wish Kirsten luck on her 20 person primary. <laughs> we, we could have another Biden Trump uh, campaign. Well, I want to thank you both. Um, so much insight and knowledge and expertise. And you're uh, so collegial. That I think a lot of us just appreciate that the time when, when uh, Republicans and Democrats and the rest of us seem to really struggle to get to that point. So thank you both very much. Uh, we really are, are appreciative of what you've done. I'm going to just mention some of the upcoming events that we have are really terrific. Mark Hugo, <clears throat> excuse me, Mark Hugo Lopez is with us October 17th noon. He runs the race and ethnicity research at Pew Research Center. He's going to be talking about Latinx voters. Um, and Pew has just done a very important study and have a lot of imp uh, implications for the elections of, in the next month. October 19th, we're going to have a tremendous program on mail ballot um, rejections. If we have the kind of close elections we we're just talking about today, this could become a front page story. Um, and we've got some of the best people in election administration joining us, including the director of elections in Colorado, uh, Mr. Judd Choate. October 24th, we're going to have a program Minnesota state elections with the lead political reporter at the Star Tribune, Brianna Bierschbach, and she'll be joined by my colleague, uh, Catherine Pearson. Uh, that'll be a hybrid event. If you're in Minnesota, you could come live or check it out online. And then November 2nd, we're very excited, a collaboration we're doing with Krista Tibbet, who many of you will know as the host of On Being, um, which is um, you know, a tremendous program. 
Um, Krista Tibbet is going to have with her Amanda Ripley, who's the author of High Conflict, um, a book about how we get trapped in conflicts and how we can break out of it. So it's it's very timely um, as a kind of as we move into the election season or towards the end of it. Um, just want to give you a heads up if you've enjoyed today's program, want to share it with folks. We will have a podcast out. We will also have it up on YouTube. Give us a day or two, and then we're going to email it out to everybody. Um, and finally, if you've enjoyed this, we really could use your help and would welcome uh, contributions and donations. I want to again thank uh, Rebecca Piercy, Kirsten Kukowski for a great program, and thanks to all of you for joining us. Thank you, everyone. Thanks.